This episode of The Jewish Views contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing. The Jewish Views on Holocaust Memorial Day 2018. Marla Tribish MBE shares her incredible story of survival. The Long Night, the memoirs of survivor Ernst Bornstein, as told by his daughter Naomi Lopian, and Petron, the campaign from Jewish Blind and Disabled that hopes to crown the cutest Jewish pet in Britain. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Among various events held to commemorate Holocaust Memorial Day, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, joined survivors and rabbis this week for a special ceremony which he hosted at City Hall. The Mayor and senior Sephardi rabbi Joseph Dweck were among those who heard emotional accounts from Holocaust survivor Manfred Goldberg and Kamal Pavanich, who survived the genocide in Bosnia in the 1990s. Mr Khan said that as the years pass, there are fewer survivors, so it's necessary to ensure younger generations learn the lessons from history. And in the House of Commons this week, the Communities Minister urged Labour to stand up to racism within the party in response to a question about Holocaust Memorial Day. Sajid David said the annual commemoration event is a reminder of the horrors of what can happen and said he noted that the Jewish Labour movement had appealed to Labour to throw out of the party those people who allegedly practice anti-Semitism. The Lord Mayor of London, in his role as a business ambassador for the city, has visited Tel Aviv and the Palestinian territories to promote trade. Charles Bowman, who's a senior partner at the accountancy firm PwC, discussed with Israeli politicians the scope a potential free trade deal between the UK and Israel would have. In Poland, the area where the Warsaw Ghetto was located could be eligible to be listed as a protected archaeological site. The goal would be to preserve the remains of the ghetto, which are located underground. The area is sometimes excavated during repairs, but objects found which relate to the history of the ghetto and the lives of its residents are not always turned over to museums. An archaeological analysis of the site will have to be prepared to define the level of protection. Finally, the singer and songwriter Neil Diamond, who is Jewish, has had to retire from touring after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. The sweet Caroline Singer, who turned 77 this week, said the decision was made with great reluctance and disappointment. Neil Diamond's been performing in shows for some 50 years and said he wanted to reassure his fans that he would continue to write and record music for a long time to come. And that's your news this week. Let's take a look at the sport now with Andrew. Thanks a lot, Viv. Diego Schwartzman saw his Australian Open campaign ended by Rafael Nadal, but the world number one was full of praise for the beaten Argentine. Having dropped his first set of the tournament during the four-hour match, Nadal said he enjoyed a great battle against a great player. Israel will face Scotland and Albania in the first edition of UEFA's Nations League. Introduced to replace international friendlies, the six matches will take place in a 10-week period between September and November and provide a second route to qualification for the 2020 European Championships. And finally, the Israel Cycling Academy has described their World Card invitation to the Giro d'Italia as a historic moment for Israeli sport and a great honour. With Israel staging the start of the world-famous cycling race in May, the team has promised to go on the attack in the race, where it will be showcasing its new white and blue jersey. 
Don't forget, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's begin, as we usually do, with a glance over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Let's have a look. First page of the paper this week reads, Amnesty ban on JLC event sparks furious backlash. Yes, this week, Amnesty International Human Rights Group decided to cancel a planned event with the Jewish Leadership Council on Israel's relationship with the UN Human Rights Council. And they did so because of the JLC's purported support for Israeli settlements, even though the JLC doesn't have a policy on Israeli settlements. So it left the JLC quite perplexed and quite angry. And a number of lawyers in the Jewish community have come out and said that Amnesty International might have actually acted illegally. The event itself did take place in Parliament after the cancellation by Amnesty, but it has caused quite a lot of anger in the community. Well, it's not really a surprise because if their motivation for cancelling this event, which they originally agreed to do, was based on the settlements in Israel, then that would be no different to a Muslim event in this country being cancelled based on the actions of a Muslim country. And it wouldn't be allowed. It wouldn't be permitted to the best of my knowledge as far as the law of the land is concerned. So it's almost understandable why there's a bit of uproar about this, isn't there, Fran? Well, again, it's this conflation that we keep seeing again and again with organisations who seem to conflate being Jewish with supporting Israel. You know, there was actually a, a good quote in the story talking about the open letter that was written to Amnesty International saying that its stance actually vindicates those who argue there's a slippery slope from endorsing the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement to discrimination of Jews. There is no doubt in my mind they're on an absolutely slippery slope here. They have put the two things on the same level and quite frankly what the JLC has to do with Israeli settlements I would like that question answered. Well, frankly, if anyone from Amnesty International is listening to this podcast and would like to tell us their stance, they're very welcome to do so. Studio at jewishviews.co.uk. We'll more than happily read that out on next week's programme. But furthermore, we should also stress as well that if there are genuine concerns from Amnesty International, which there clearly are somewhere along the line, that's not to say that we are dismissing those concerns. It's more the confusion is about relating those concerns with the Jewish community and Israel as one. I think the, the bigger issue at hand here is that Amnesty International seem to be holding British Jews accountable for the actions of Israel, and that's simply not acceptable. You can't you can't pull out of an event with a British Jewish representative group because of the actions of a foreign state. However much you disagree with settlements, they're not responsible for it. And I think that's why there's so much anger. Let's have a look at one of the other stories on the front page. The only other story on the front page, Brits want Hezbollah outlawed. My goodness me, this has rolled on time and time again, hasn't it? But the headline is actually across page two and three. Poll Brits back Hezbollah ban four to one. Yes, this week, Comres ran a poll for the Jewish News exclusively. And there's kind of an overwhelming 
support for the prescription of Hezbollah. 81% of those with a view wanted the political wing prescribed and 91% of UK Jews want to see the government take action. This has been rumbling on for years now. Every year there is an Al-Quds Day parade which sees Hezbollah flags flying through the streets of London. And the British Jewish community have been asking ever since this has been going on really for the government to take action but the only way they can do that is by closing a legal loophole that exists that allows people to wave the Hezbollah flag and state that it's signifying their political support as opposed to the support for their military wing. Even Hezbollah themselves say that there is no difference between the two things. It is absolutely extraordinary just how this story rumbles on. And there are those stories, Fran, that we come across on the paper review time and time again that just seem to not come to any conclusion, but yet there never seems to be any shortage of material. Every article that is written about it, every time we discuss it, there is a twist and turn, but not necessarily a concluding one. You know, even the Prime Minister herself has said there's far too much tolerance of extremism in our country. But quite frankly, what has the government done about it? Why do we still see these flags flying in the streets of London, in the very place where terror attacks have taken place, too many terror attacks in the past 12 months? I think something does have to be done. I think this poll shows that people are very much behind something being done. And I'd like to see the government actually taking action. I think that you speak for quite a few Jews out there, but we should also remember that it's not just about what Jewish community wants. There are, of course, obviously others who do have a massive support for Hezbollah, whether you agree or disagree. But never mind. Let's see what happens in the weeks to come on that. Page six headline reads, Sachs had key role in Pence's Israel speech. Lord Sachs was asked by Mike Pence to help him put together a speech to the Israeli parliament. He actually made the headlines after he told a cheering Israeli politician crowd that the Trump administration would actually be fast tracking the relocation of the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, quote, by the end of next year. So it does look like they are still on course for doing this, despite obviously disapproval from some quarters. And I think that's putting it very mildly, but keep going. <laughs> trying to be polite. Pence also called on Palestinians to return to the negotiating table and he promised that America would withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal unless it was changed. So Trump, again, putting himself in his own position, showing that he is his own man. Now, what was Sachs' involvement in this? From what we can tell, you know, Sachs does not have a political view. He was there merely to add the kind of spiritual and biblical embellishments that were needed in the speech to make it powerful. And as we know, Lord Sachs is one of the world's best orators out there. So who better to ask than Lord Sachs? Interesting stuff. Okay, let's have a look at page 25, Fran. We'll jump a couple of pages. And I believe that we're on your territory, where the headline reads, Most wished they could have killed more Nazis. Extraordinary headline, isn't it? This is an incredible documentary. If you don't watch anything else this weekend, please do watch Holocaust, The Revenge Plot. It's going to be on Channel 4. The documentary is actually quite fascinating. It revolves around a series of audio recordings that were discovered by the director of the documentary, Avi Mercado Etedgui. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
he's an Israeli director. He came across these tapes. It was essentially recordings of a meeting that took place in 1985 with Abba Kovna, who's the leader of a secret group known as Nakam, the Avengers. He and the surviving members of his group recalled how in 1946 they came up with a very audacious plot to kill six million Germans by poisoning the country's water supply. So essentially it was a, an eye for an eye plot. Six million Jews had been killed. They were angry. They wanted revenge. They felt this was the best way to achieve justice. Ultimately, that plot was foiled. However, in the recordings, they do actually implicate two Israeli future presidents, Chaim Weizmann and Ephraim Katzir, in actually helping them to acquire the poison. So that's quite a mind-blowing in itself. And they also had a second plot, which was to poison the bread of 50,000 SS officers being held at prison of war camps. And there is actually evidence to suggest they partly succeeded. So it's absolutely incredible stuff, really worth watching. Absolutely. Well, there you go. If you want to read more about that, page 25 in this week's paper and Holocaust, the Revenge Plot airs on 27th of January, 9pm on Channel 4. And you can always watch that on demand. Just very, very quickly and finally, something that is not in the paper that we do have to mention that we actually heard just before we started recording this particular episode of The Jewish Views. You may recall back in August last year that we featured a campaign that was simply called Hashtag Save Dave. And it was about one David Kay who lived in Israel with his family there. And it was to try and help him after he was diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer with huge regrets. We have to announce that we learned that he did lose that battle only this week. So we are obviously terribly sorry to hear that because he did feature on this programme. Okay, thank you both very much indeed. Sorry to end on a sad note, but that is all we have time for for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you may have gathered, it's around January the 27th every year that the community marks Holocaust Memorial Day. This year it fell on the 25th of January so as not to clash with Shabbat. And this year's theme is the power of words, looking at how they can make a difference for good and evil. Well, someone who knows only too well what evil is, is survivor Mala Tribish, MBE. Here she is, telling just some of her remarkable story in her own words. And I should warn you that what you're about to listen to may be distressing for some listeners. Whenever anybody asks me where I come from, and I say Poland, people say, well, which village do you come from? And I say, I don't come from a village. I lived in a town, a very well-known town and a very old town. And my life before the war was quite sort of unremarkable. It was the life of that period. I went to school and I had friends and I, I, I had quite a big family. Well, the, the, my parents' generations were quite large families, so I had lots of aunts and uncles and we used to visit one another. They lived in different towns, so we traveled to them, they traveled to us. We were moderately religious, we weren't as religious as the people imagine, because anyone who comes from Poland is, is sort of assumed to be, you know, have pyres and, and the special hats and so on. So it's, it was quite a modern life, actually. 
we had a Jewish community. Our town had a population of 55,000, of which 15,000 were Jewish. So it's about a third, a little less. You know, we had good relations. We lived in harmony with with our neighbors who weren't Jewish, although there was a lot of anti-Semitism. I think that there was talk of war, but of course nobody expected it to come so quickly and so soon and so suddenly that the bombing just started on the 1st of September. And I think we're all surprised by it. And of course we all felt, like people in this country, that it won't last. You know, it'll stop as fast as it came. It'll stop very soon. But uh, little did we know it was going to last five and a half years and and all the consequences of it. Our town they reached within five days and the whole of Poland was taken within two weeks. And ours was the first town to have a ghetto in Poland. So the war started on the 1st of September, and by the 1st of November, we had all been forced out of our homes and into the ghetto. The the Christians had to move out. There were some Jews living there already anyway, and we moved in. We were very lucky because we got a whole room to ourselves. That's for five people, one room, and we were doing really well because At some point, the ghetto was so overcrowded that there were as many as 10 people to a room. And because the overcrowding created a lot of of medical problems and and epidemics, the the lighter side soon disappeared and we we were really living in dreadful conditions. The ghetto was... Ours had barbed wire around it later on, not at first. But we weren't allowed out of the ghetto at any time. And we had to wear a white armband with a blue Star of David on the forefront of the arm. And we weren't allowed out. People were going to work and there were just columns of men going out and coming back. Some of the work was done within the ghetto, the official work for the Germans, the tailoring and things like that. The rumors, you know, the, the information sort of leaked out and we knew that there was going to be a deporta- big deportation and the ghetto was going to be liquidated except the people who had work permits, they they were going to be all right. Everybody else was going to be deported. And people started making arrangements. Some tried to make some arrangements to try and save themselves. There were various ways and means, and some of them were that if somebody had perhaps a friend outside who would save a child or... You know, people would smuggle themselves out of the ghetto and then live outside in the open, in the parks, in the forests, in the sewers, anywhere to avoid deportation. Because we knew what it meant. It was going to be to somewhere like Treblinka or Sobibor or Belgium. You know, it was going to be a place where one was just killed on arrival. Some people were hiding Jews for money. 
My parents were recommended to these people together with my aunt and uncle, the Klein family, who had one child, one daughter. And these people were willing to, to hide two Jewish children. I was going to be one of the two children, and my cousin Ija was the other one. Now, they weren't exactly thrilled to have us, but they tolerated us. And when there was a knock on the door, sometimes it was okay for us to mix. Other times, they quickly bundled us into a cupboard under the, under the bed, anywhere out of sight, until the people left. But my cousin, who was an only child, she was so unhappy, she couldn't bear it. She wanted to go home. And she actually asked to be taken home. And she was told that they can't take her home yet because the deportations are still going on. And she said, we have very good friends in Piotrkov who are hiding my parents' valuables. They will take me in. And the men said, okay. And off they went. So now I was on my own because she had gone back and I was still there. But eventually, the time came for me to go back to the ghetto. I didn't know what we were going to find, but what, actually what was there was that the deportations were finished and they were out of 28,000. Now, they were 2,400 people left out of the 28,000. They, they went to their deaths. There was my father waiting for me, but also my uncle, Joseph Klein, Ija's father. My uncle looked at us and he said, where's my daughter? And he said, I brought her back. I took her to your friends. And he said, but she's not there. Where is she? What have you done with my child? And this is really the end of the story because nobody knows till this day. When they liquidated the ghetto altogether and only the people with the work permits were there and they had their workplaces. There were two places. There was a glass works and, and a plywood producing place, very large concerns. And the ghetto they were liquidating the small ghetto, but there were still some illegals there because they did, I mean, I wasn't legal, nor was my little cousin. At some point, my, my aunt, a health got aunt, was rounded up and she was deported and she left a five-year-old daughter. And by that time, I was the only health got female member of the family and it was down to me to look after her. I was 12 and she was five. But anyway, from there, we were allocated to the same factory, the plywood place. I started working at the age of 12. I was a slave laborer and we were there for about 18 months and conditions got worse and there's less food, there's hard work. And, but we, you know, we were there for that period and then we were deported. Now, when they deported us, they, we walked to the station. Men went one way, women the other. 
the men were deported to Buchenwald concentration camp, and I ended up with the women in Ravensbrück concentration camp. I want you to know what it was like to arrive at Ravensbrück because, well, after they took our details, we had to strip, our clothing was taken away, our heads were shaved, we went through cold communal showers, and when we got out at the other end, we were given the concentration camp guard. When we looked at one another, we literally could not recognize each other. Because, you know, when you think about it, we're all individuals. We all look different because the way we do our hair, the clothes we wear, and how we wear it. And suddenly, we had lost all that. Our identity was stripped of our identity. And what it does, one of the things it does, is it makes you lose, you lose hope. And without hope, there's no survival. And this showed itself very quickly because my aunt, Franja Klein, I always mention names today because they were individuals with names and not just numbers. My, my aunt, Franja, died within a few days of arrival. My best friend, Pema Blachmann, died soon after that. And people were just giving up. After about two or three months, we were put on more, on, on, on sort of these, again, on the, the cattle trucks. And this time, after a shorter journey, we ended up in Bergen-Belsen. The first thing that hit you was the smell and the smog, and, and then there were people who were like skeletons, and they were shuffling along sort of aimlessly, and that collapsed and died as they were shuffling. You could be speaking to someone and they'd die in front of you. There were dead bodies everywhere and there were piles of, of naked, twisted, decaying bodies. It, it was just like something out of hell. It, it was unbelievable. And the overcrowding was such that where well, there should have been, say, 80 to 100 people, there could be as many as 1,000 in a barracks. I heard from someone that there is a children's hut somewhere in the camp. Not that conditions were much better. It, it's a, it was a camp with mostly Dutch children with such an amazing history that I haven't got time to tell you. But we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have survived on the main camp. And we were really very lucky to get in there. And it was very close to the end of the war. But even there, I still succumbed to typhus which was rife in camp, and along with all the other diseases you could imagine. I remember lying on my upper bunk by the window, and I must have come back into consciousness when I saw people running. And I didn't know where they were running or why they were running, but all I could think of was, how have they got the strength to run? And that was the 15th of April, 1945, when we were liberated by the British. Simply mind-blowing, isn't it? Marla Tribish, MBE, talking about her story of survival from the Shoah. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by founder of the homeopathic helpline David Needleman and journalist and author Jeremy Havadi. 
They will be discussing how best to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive after survivors are no longer around. Plus, Harley Baptiste will be speaking to Yael Toledano of Jewish Blind and Disabled about their Petron campaign 2018. But first, as the theme of Holocaust Memorial continues on this week's episode of The Jewish Views, let's hear now from Nermi Lopian, who's the daughter of Holocaust survivor Ernst Bornstein. His book is entitled The Long Night, and Nermi has translated the book into English in a bid to try and help combat anti-Semitism in this day and age. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to her to find out more. Kate started by asking Nermi to remind us a bit more about who her father was. My father was called Dr. Ernst Israel Bornstein. He was a survivor and a true survivor in every way. He was born on the 26th of November 1922 and he describes, he wrote a book about his experiences in the Second World War, particularly the years of 1939 to 1945. He describes briefly pre-war Poland and then the invasion by the Germans But really his story begins when, in the early hours of a Tuesday morning, he gets ripped from his parental home, clubbed and beaten out of it, to be deported to his first labour camp. That was when he saw his mother for the very last time and two of his siblings, but he was reunited with his father. And when you were growing up, what was your relationship like with your father? I had a very close relationship with my father. I have to say I'm a true daddy's girl. But sadly, it was taken much too early. He died shortly after my 12th birthday. And after he had sadly left you and the whole sort of family must have been very bereft, did the story of his background ever come to light and what happened? I actually, I always thought of my father as being an inverted commas, somebody special. And when we asked him about, tell us about your years as a young person, because children are always fascinated, can't imagine their parents as young people. He would always tell us funny stories and he said the rest is written for you in the long night. And I'm grateful to him because I think from 12 and under one is too young to fathom the brutality and the extremes that people had to endure in the Holocaust. So I only turned to it by chance. We had an ethics lesson in Germany. Anybody of the Jewish faith or agnostic had to go to religious education. So ethics was the alternative. And that's where I found out about Nazis and what they did to the Jews. And the three pictures that stick in my mind is a skip of hair, a skip of bones and a skip of glasses. And my peers and I, I did not know. And then I came home to my mother and asked and read the book for the first time at the age of 13. So you were in Germany at this time? Yes, I was, yeah. And who had the book? Where was this book? This book was called Die Lange Nacht. My father wrote it whilst he was studying medicine and dentistry shortly after the war. So it's a very fresh, vivid account, almost like a film, a reportage. It doesn't burden the reader with his emotions, but allows the reader to form their own opinion. It's a balanced account, almost a witness report, because it gives people's names there, and it tells you about the good and the bad. So people can buy the book if they want to, listeners can get the book? Yes, they can do. It's The Long Night. It's available on Amazon and major English bookstores like Waterstone and Blackstone. And just turning to Holocaust Memorial Day, which is something obviously very important in the Jewish calendar, how are you involved? What events are you looking forward to or interested in? I attended the event at the Foreign Office where they honoured British heroes, i.e. people that saved 
Jews and others that were going to be deported by the Nazis. And that meant a lot for me because I do believe that Jews need the support at government level, as well as having the our youth, high school pupils and students educated about the Holocaust. So we need it from, I would say, young age and the old age, the people in power. Well, I want to come on to the education in a minute, but first I want to know how is the day to be remembered best, would you imagine? that? I noticed there was this wonderful idea of the, the power of words this year. And as we know in the Jewish faith, words are so powerful. I mean, the world came into being through words. So clearly it's very, it's very key to create something with words. But how has that worked its way through into remembering the Holocaust? I think very much through the power of words because you have people speaking. You have the survivors speaking. You have people, the the commemoration I attended at the Foreign Office and the Archbishop Welby spoke, the Chief Rabbi spoke, the Israeli Ambassador spoke, and I feel for the first time ever that I've been to a Holocaust commemoration, people actually connected anti-Semitism to the Holocaust. And I, I, I really thank the Archbishop Welby because he spoke up and out against anti-Semitism, as well as Mark Regev, who spoke out against anti-Israel propaganda being anti-Semitism. And the power of words, as we all know, can be used for the good and the bad. And in the Holocaust, they were so successful by using words, making anti-Semitic propaganda through words, being it, be it spoken, be it through literature. And we have that today through social media continuing. Yet at the same time, the beauty of words can be so uplifting and encouraging and, and give love and inspire and strengthen people. That's very true. The The power of, the, of your father's words is wonderful. You translated his work into your own words. Were you the translator? Yes, I was. I had a gentleman with me, David Arnold. He doesn't speak any German, but I wanted him for the good English. But what I realised was that his English was very different to my father's English, and it became a, a nice battle of wills. However, I'm very grateful to David because he gave me the discipline to keep the appointments of translation and also allowed me to create distance when I needed it, when the passages became emotionally very difficult because obviously, as my father's daughter and the love I had for him and he for me, I'm extremely close and it was very painful. So having David there allowed me to create a barrier around me and to continue with the translation. But yes, the power of words. I fought very hard to keep my father's language a nuance. And I realise that as a, as a successive translator, one has to keep the language of the author to be true to the author. You talk about, in the past, you've talked about guilt, the guilt of the second, the second generation. And, the, and another thing I want to ask you about at the same time is you asked the question, can the daughter's voice be the father's voice? Have you found the answers to those questions? I'd like to think yes, because I think it's important. I think we can, we can feel, we can identify, and it's the father's voice mustn't be lost. Even though I'm not his son, as his daughter, I feel I can, I hope I can do him justice and proud. My father spoke twice yearly in Dachau, and came home, my mother said, completely finished, as it were, having relived his experiences. And I feel I want to honour this commemoration and to keep the memories of the Holocaust alive so that it can never, ever happen again. And we must do that through education. So that leads me on to the Holocaust Education Trust. Is this something you're personally involved in? 
I admire the trust greatly, but I've done my own work. We've brought out a website now that we're launching with Holocaust Memorial Day called holocaustmatters.org, which mirrors the long night, but is also going to be used as a learning tool because we've categorized the different themes of the book. And also there are many universal themes in the book that people can use to teach racism, about racism and hatred and hope to, you know, hope for a better world and particularly therefore target the students and people who are very receptive to being educated. Truly fascinating stuff from Nomi Lopian talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her father's book, The Long Night, and it's by Ernst Bornstein, her father being a Holocaust survivor who sadly, although he's no longer around, Nomi definitely carries on his amazing work through his words. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Don't forget, if you would like to get in contact with us, we always love to hear your thoughts. Please do email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will also find all information pertaining to the current week's guests. Now, on a slightly lighter note, Petron from Jewish Blind and Disabled is back for a third year in a row. The contest sees the community pets used to raise some much-deserved awareness for the work JBD do in a bid to try and find the cutest of the community's pets. To find out more about this, reporter Harley Baptiste has been speaking to Yael Toledano from Jewish Blind and Disabled, and he started by asking Yael to remind us about the work that JBD do. Jewish Blind and Disabled is a charity based in northwest London that provides housing for blind or disabled people all around Jewish London. So we have seven buildings currently in Finchley and in Mill Hill and in Essex and in Bushy. And we provide independent living for people all over London and help them out. So you have a number of different committees as part of Jewish Blind and Disabled, Young, Life and Style, Juniors. And How do you think having those different committees helps build a community around the charity? Well, to be honest, I think it helps because we are able to stretch our hand a little further, so to speak. So whereas the young professionals are reaching a certain age group, the JBD Juniors is reaching a community, so to speak, of young mums with young kids and they want to get involved in some sort of way that coincides with their lifestyle. So I think it's all about stretching the arm of JBD into so many various places. And you're here today to talk about becoming a Petron, which is a very clever play on words. I appreciate that. It's a very good play on words. So we launched the Petron campaign in January 2016, and we currently have 19 paying owners of dogs all over London. And in the last six months, we have two tortoises and one cat. So we're not specifically only dogs, we're all pets of all shapes and sizes. It's a very clever and unique way to actually encourage people to become a patron or and, and, and invest money into, into the charity and 
So how, how did it sort of come back? Because I know it's an annual thing. Yeah. How, how did it sort of begin? So basically, as I said before, it's trying to stretch the arm of JBD out just that little bit further and trying to relate to all potential donors out there. Even if they don't have kids or they're not in the ages of 22 to 35 or whatever it is, if let's say you have a pet, this is a way that you can get involved whilst bringing in something that you feel passionate about. So if you're passionate about your dog, that's great. So are we. And I've seen a couple of the photos and some of those, I mean, it's a lot A lot of the dogs, the photos I've seen, but as you say, there are cats and others as well, but some of them are just yeah. drop dead cute. Or gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous. So is there a is there a particular way that if I wanted to enter my cats, for example, is there anything sure. is there anything I should do in the photos, maybe dress for them sure. up a little bit? Well, so the competition that we have going at the moment, which is going to be judged by Ashley Belaker, he's a Jewish comedian, and he is going to be judging our pets that bring him the biggest smile. So usually our petrons owners, they try to do something funny with their pet, i.e. put a funny filter on them or put a prop or an item of clothing or get them to do something fun and whatever brings out the most smile wins. <laughs> and what is the, have you seen through all the photos and entries you've got so far? Yes, yeah, so there... all the entries come to me. Cool. So and, great. And are there currently in, in particular, obviously you don't need to name any names, but are there currently any in particular that you can sort of call to yes, and be like, hey, yeah. we've got a few? There are some great entries this year. We're really, really excited. We'll see how it goes. Awesome. So being a Petron is the, isn't just putting your a picture of your pet through for the, the campaign. What, what do you get if you are actually a Petron? Okay, so it is £60 a year to become a Petron and you send in a picture of your pet and then by signing up, you receive a kindly donated Lily's Kitchen bedtime biscuit and also Medivet have kindly donated Kong toys for all owners who sign up or renew their patronage. And these are sent to the pets and their owners with a lovely thank you from ourselves. That's it. And if someone was just looking to, after hearing this, go ahead and, and, and sign up or make a donation, how about can they get to doing that? Even if they're not currently a Petron, we're accepting all applications for the campaign of the which pet brings the biggest smile. And hopefully by applying to their campaign, it will lead them to signing up. So if one wanted to sign up, one could just email me yael at jbd.org and we'll send you a whole brochure and pamphlet and some gifts and some cute pictures. Yael Toledano speaking to Jewish Views' Harley Baptiste there about the Petron 2018 campaign. For more information, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today are founder of the homeopathic helpline David Needleman and journalist and author Jeremy Havadi. And the subject for this edition is, of course, based on Holocaust Memorial Day. The question is, how do we ensure that the memory of the Holocaust is never forgotten? 
once those who witnessed it firsthand are no longer around. And there are very few around now, of course. Jeremy, let's start with you. Do you worry that a time will come when no one remembers exactly what the Holocaust is? There is, there is that uh, worry, yes. In particular, I think in a lot of, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence showing that in the education system now, the majority of students cannot, for example, they cannot identify what Auschwitz is. They haven't necessarily heard of concentration camps, and there is a level of historical ignorance that I think is quite alarming. So therefore, there is definitely a need to keep entrenching in the popular memory and popular understanding exactly what the Holocaust was about and to keep alive the memory of those who tragically perished. And perhaps one of the main ways in which that can happen is to reinforce it through the education system to ensure, for example, that students visit the sites of the death camps from the war. Also to ensure that we continue to see a production of films and documentaries, television programmes that attest to what happened, and recording the memories of those who who are still here, ensuring that their memories are recorded, that there is something actually preserved that can also be passed on to other generations. So I think there's a lot of different ways in which you can keep the memory of the show think, alive. David? Basically, you've said everything I was thinking. There, There is a time degeneration when I say degeneration, I, I don't mean that it's falling to pieces, but over time, people forget. People dilute. We also have the Holocaust denialists. And, you know, you go to places, like you say, you go to Auschwitz or whatever, and you see buildings, but that's all you see. You go to Anne Frank's house, and you see a sterile environment made as a museum. But what you don't get from that is the passion. You don't get the the terror you don't get the fear and that was all part of the holocaust engendering fear and of course it wasn't just about a genocide it was about individual stories but now but now that you've got holocaust survivors giving their stories which they didn't do for many many years and they're giving their stories to school children as well as adults of certain age who didn't know anything about it maybe whose parents didn't go through that that is actually what Jeremy says keeping it alive now more and more so and we spoke last week about university students going to Auschwitz being taken to Auschwitz and, and doing a holocaust education trip and that way if that keeps going then we will remember this. Actually, you see, I'm slightly disagree in a disagreement with you because when I went to Auschwitz, I found it singularly dramatic. When you see Franz Kafka's case there with his clothes still in it, having been carried there and lost his life there, and it's made very clear he's lost his life there in the gas chambers. And when you enter the gas chambers, it is a horrifying reminder of everything that you were talking about. Clive, is this because you're of a certain age, like like the rest of us, apart from Jeremy, who's probably the youngest one here, would that have the same effect on someone much younger, younger children or not? I yes, don't know. You my, think it would? my teenage granddaughter went to Auschwitz quite recently and came back with very much the same reactions that I did. Right. What about the situation where people that are going, people are having education at university, whatever, that are not of a Jewish origin? I don't think that makes much difference. I've spoken Mm. 
to many people who have a have a tremendous reaction who are not Jewish. But I mean, that's not that's not the only way that you can possibly do it. I mean, there are all sorts of things. I mean, how do you keep it alive? That's the point. I mean, you can't force people to go to Auschwitz. Have any of us actually doubted the size of the Holocaust, how big the actual thing was? I mean, not just six million Jews, but all the other people that were murdered, plus the size of and quantity of all the concentration camps that the Germans and other nationalities no, that's, built up. That's true. And, and six how can million we, people who were killed. Six, six million, million Jews. Six plus, million Jews. Plus, plus another four million. At least. Who were, who were not Jews. Mm. But we, the, the scale of it is, it's almost, you can't, you can't imagine what the scale of that is, can what, you? What I find quite interesting is that when you have this discussion, many people will say, but there have been many genocides since then. What does the word genocide actually mean? Does it mean Holocaust? Well, it just means the attempted destruction in whole or in part of an entire group of people. If we're looking at the world today, we can see examples where you have beleaguered minorities, particularly religious communities in the Middle East, who, while they may not face total destruction, are certainly facing a horrendous situation of mass murder. So you're talking about the Yazidis, for example, in Iraq. You're talking about various religious minorities that have faced relentless persecution under under Islamist control. And so if you're looking for an example today, that's where you would have to have a look. But I mean, you've also got, for example, what happened in, in Bosnia in the late 90s, East Timor. There are plenty of examples mm-hmm. we can find where you have attempted mass murder or, or dehumanization of minorities. And you would call those holocausts rather than genocide? Well, the, the holocaust should be a term, I use the term Shoah, but that refers to one specific example of genocide and probably the most well-known example of genocide in modern history. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't describe other examples of genocides as, as holocausts. So I use the, you know, that term should be reserved for one. Yes, because the other... The other genocides, which have been terrible and have been ghastly, but none of them have ended up with these huge gas chambers in which millions of people are killed. They've just been, they've just been murdered in another way. In That's another all. way, in another yes. Way, yeah. I mean, I think in a way, just very quickly, but it is important in any Holocaust museum to also remember other examples mm. of genocides that have taken place afterwards, not just as an afterthought, but in a way you're trying to learn lessons from this one terrible event that took place. That's a very good point. And, and, and actually, it's a very good saying, learn a lesson, because the world has not learned that lesson. And will the world ever learn that lesson? I don't think so. How, how does this aspect go? I mean, we're, we're Jewish sitting around this table, but maybe one day we need someone who isn't Jewish to sit in on this group and give their opinion, because how does it affect non-Jews? This is, this is what I was sort of saying earlier. But I think there's also another problem and that is the dilution by language. What is a holocaust? What yes. is a genocide? They talk in terms of ethnic cleansing. Well, you know, that's a very politically correct terminology, isn't it? What does it actually mean? They're using it so much these days, aren't they? It's know? lost its value. It's mm. lost its meaning completely. No, because you've got to tell people by showing them. And that's why one wonders, perhaps, maybe the way to do it is to show people, make people go to Yad Vashem and the new Westminster Centre in keeping the memory alive. That's a big part of it, because if you can see something or hear something, it, it leaves a lasting impression. 
you look at the world at war on television, which they repeat over and over again, and then you look at them going into the concentration camps, those pictures stay with you forever. They stay with you because you're Jewish, but do yes. they stay with non-Jews as well, do you think? Well, I'm not so sure know. they do. I mean, I don't think to they do. Point. I've got non-Jewish friends who, okay, because they know me, they are slightly more aware of what Jewish people went through, what Jewish people are going through with Israel and everything else now. But they, they've all said to me without doubt that if they didn't know me, it wouldn't mean anything to them because it doesn't affect their daily life. Yeah. It affects my daily life, you know, because it's part of our our upbringing and part of what our people went through. Because it's our heritage. Our heritage, yeah. But it's been our heritage for two thousand years. Yes. That's, yes, that's exactly. the problem. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just gone on the, forever. It's just the culmination of a of a of a two millennia of persecution, persecution and murder. Mm. That's all part of being Jewish in yeah. a sense, isn't it? Yeah, in one way it is. Yes, definitely. So, uh, how do you make people who are not Jewish have the same feeling and keep it in living history? I think then, from what you're saying, the answer is you can't. No, you can't. You can't. But you, well, you have to try by taking them on these visits. And, and hopefully, I mean, it's not going to be long before there'll be no survivors left. But on a lot of visits, they take a survivor with who gives his story or her story. And, and that sometimes I've, I've seen people in schools cry after they've heard a Holocaust survivor talk, boys and girls. And we're talking about ages from from 14 up to 17 in tears over what went on, because I don't think they realize the severity of how people were treated. I'm not going to say Jewish people alone, but just people in general were treated. Yeah, I, I don't think it would be fair to say that non-Jews can't relate as powerfully and viscerally to the Holocaust as, as Jews can. Clearly, it is etched in the Jewish consciousness in a way that it simply isn't for any other people because it is part and parcel of, of what we have experienced. But I think the crucial thing here is give knowledge. Make sure that the memory of the survivors is preserved. Make sure that the knowledge of the terrible events that took place is disseminated so that you don't end up with the baleful situation where there is ignorance. I think extremely important to make it compulsory for everyone to go to Auschwitz, to go to the famous museum in Berlin, to go to the museum in London, all the museums which, and the famous one in Israel, yeah, which we mm, already yeah, mentioned, Yad Vashem, mm. they give such a, a wide view of it and give you things that you can never forget. The pictures of, of the children's clothes and dolls and toys, it's, it's frightening. And the because wonderful walk in the, I've said this before too, the wonderful walk in the, in the German museum, it, it, which you walk along, and it's, it's extraordinary. You have to see it to believe it. It is on the curriculum in Germany. All schools take their children to Auschwitz, and uh, I, I don't know whether any other concentration camps, certainly in Auschwitz. There because are. It's on the, there's, there's one just but whether they take the children, whether they take the children. But it is on the curriculum that the, every child learns about the war it's also illegal to deny the holocaust that isn't here but do you think we should make it compulsory in our schools in the i think UK? education should be compulsory i don't necessarily think that visits N not the visits be. shouldn't be part of the curriculum well it, it means a foreign travel for a lot of people that wouldn't be able to afford it well so i think you make it optional but have it available. Well, one, I'm one, very one, much afraid one. that that's where we'll have to leave it because our time is up. But thank you all. 
Very, very much indeed. And my thanks to our guests, founder of the Homeopathic Helpline, David Needleman, and journalist and author Jeremy Havadi. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. And you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. So I went to see the latest Disney Pixar offering with my youngest son this week, Coco, and it is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I've always been impressed with a lot of the productions they do because they make you think. And they many times relate to issues that are very close to my heart as a Jew, as a rabbi, and, and just as somebody who's really trying to make sure that kids and people think about issues in a deeper and more meaningful way. And not to give away the whole movie, which I definitely recommend you go see, it's all about the idea of what happens after you die. Obviously, it's a Disney movie. It's not going to be either graphic or intense or, I guess, true to fact, because, of course, we don't really know what happens after we die. But what it did teach is the concept of it's so important to remember those who've passed on. And, of course, Jewish-wise, this is such a powerful idea because it's exactly what we say. Yiska, which, of course, is the major time of year we remember those who've passed on, comes from the word Zachor, which means to remember. But what's very powerful, as Rabbi Sachs points out many times, is the word Zachor is mentioned so many times in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, in fact, 169 times. And what's interesting is, in essence, it's the word we use for history, because the Jewish people doesn't have history, it has memory. And the way you remember, when you look at the Torah, when you look at the Bible, is always for the future. And of course, this week in Bishalach, when we leave Mitzrayim, when we head out and cross the Red Sea, we're still taught to remember Zecher Yitziat Mitzrayim, to remember the coming out of Egypt. It's not enough to remember the act for what happened then, it's what's the impact on that act for you now? How's it changing you today, what happened yesterday? Remember our loved ones at Yiska? It's are we living lives today that they will be proud of? And in many ways, the film taught me, taught my kids, taught those who saw in the cinema the importance of remembering not simply for the past, but remembering for the future as well. How fitting are the words of Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our thoughts for the week there. Thank you very much indeed to him. And indeed, that's all the Jewish views we have time for. So thank you goes to all of our guests on this program, to Marla Tribich, MBE, recalling her incredible story of survival, to Naomi Lopian, telling us about translating her father Ernst Bornstein's work in The Long Night, to Yael Toledano from Jewish Blind and Disabled telling us about their Petron campaign. Thanks to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. And let it be known that this episode of The Jewish Views will be dedicated to the memory of David Kay. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>